Welcome to Fat Guy, Jack Guy. I'm Steph Rubino. And I'm Brendan Walsh. Today, we're talking about two important War on Terror documentaries that everyone should watch. But before we do that, we have a little message for you. Please consider becoming a patron of Fat Guy, Jack Guy by going to patreon.com backslash fat guy, jack guy. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us fund trips to Tallahassee <laughs> to accept the Florida Book Award. Which Brendan got. Yeah. So not to get backtracked, but... Become a patron. It's dope. Thank you, guys. Enjoy the show. Fat guy, Jack guy, two wacky goofballs talking about stuff. Fat guy, Jack guy, two wacky goofballs talking about stuff. Two biological I'm not sure why I did this to myself, (laughs) but I guess watching Hurt Locker and ZDT wasn't enough punishment for me. It simply wasn't enough. So I said, give me more. (laughs) Put me into a deep, dark despair the week of my wedding. And I did that. Well, you know, the week of your... You're, you got married three days before the 20th anniversary of the start yeah. of the war in Iraq. And I think Karimi understands that. <laughs> the historical significance. <laughs> of that day. <laughs> That's right. Aside from it being St. Patrick's Day, it's also three days before our personal D-Day, yes. actually. Dude, George W. Bush didn't care about the, the plight of the Irish American at all, you know? <laughs> he didn't even let you guys celebrate for a whole week. He didn't consider he us. Like, <laughs> you're cut off at three days, <laughs> and now we're starting the war. Yeah, so we're talking today about two War on Terror documentaries in a similar vein to the motion pictures that we watched We're going to talk about a documentary about the war in Iraq, which is 2007's No End in Sight, and about the war in Afghanistan, 2010's Restrepo. Mm -hmm. Two incredibly important, intensely depressing documentary films. As they should be. Yeah. You should watch these and have a laugh. (laughs) Just a goofy movie. Yeah. I was thinking today about George W. Bush and... Well, he's goofy. Yeah, I was trying to put him While in... being extremely dangerous. ...in, like, context in my head, and I was like, George W. Bush, known for his many gaffes, like that goofy did about Fool Me Once, and also the <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people that were killed... His biggest ...on false show, pretenses. On. Yeah, that yeah. was the biggest gaffe was, of his yeah, presidency. That was his biggest goof. That's what they'll put in, like, the... When he dies, or, in his like... Obit- in his New York Times obituary. It wasn't all goofs with George W. Bush. <laughs> But there were two good ones. (laughs) That's going to be it. Yes. Uh, So fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. Okay. Let's start with No End in Sight. This one I had not seen. I had seen Restrepo before. You did as well. Back in 2010. I still have not seen No End in Sight, though I will watch it. I would recommend everyone watch it. Even people like us who know a lot about the war in Iraq. When you watch this film, the level of mismanagement the level of like just absurd lack of foresight is devastating yeah as a human being not even let alone an american (laughs) you could not watch this and just feel rage and just like disappointment that like what the fuck are we doing what the fuck happened this is not a 
one side is like has a point and the other side oh, has no. a point. There's one side that has they a good point. They straight up manufactured this shit. It's crazy. They lied. Yeah, they lied and then they did just And I the know worst. that that's like I know that that's like an accepted thing now in in our society where like yeah, they lied about the war in Iraq. But like I don't know if people sit with that. No. Like, it's just like, oh, the government does all these crazy yeah. things. And it's like, yeah, they do, but also like <laughs> Sit with that for a second. <laughs> this is like more like, than just... Just a second. You had to wait in line at the DMV or whatever. Like, yeah, that's bad and annoying. Well, we had to too. wait five hours to get, yeah. <laughs> to get the marriage license yeah. signed. Like, these things are annoying. However, these wars ruined. <laughs> ruined. Like, and still are ruining. So much. Yeah. Let's just jump right into No Let's End go. In Sight. Because I know we're, we're going to have a lot of laughs. I'm just kidding. It's going to be sad. <laughs> So we got a lot in the in yeah. the front end here. We front end of goofs. <laughs> get ready to be sad. I took a little bit out of your playbook. Here's the one sentence synopsis for 2007's oh, nice. No End in Sight: A comprehensive look at the Bush administration's conduct of the Iraq War and its occupation of the country. That's right on. <laughs> if you didn't know everything you need to know, if you didn't know anything about <laughs> the Bush administration's conduct of the Iraq War. You might be like, okay, this movie's a horror show. An absolute yeah. horror show. No One in Sight made, uh, released in 2007. It was the directorial debut of Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker Charles Ferguson. Premiered January 22nd, 2007 at Sundance. And it opened in two theaters in the United States in July 2007. It had a theatrical gross of $1.4 million. Yeah. Which is about right for a just depressing documentary, yeah. I suppose. But yeah. also more depressing is the fact that no one really saw this. When you yeah. think about Fahrenheit 9-11, a movie I know, that so many people saw it, yeah. huge theatrical release, and as you said, kind of falls flat, Yeah. nothing about No End in Sight falls flat. Uh, wow. I wanted to do the goof that we did for our patrons last week where I looked up <laughs> bad reviews. And everybody's like, this shit yeah, is Everyone was like, this amazing. is a great movie. I found one bad review that was like, there's, uh, like, this one-sided. It's like, there's only one <laughs> there's side only for one this side. one. There's only one side. Okay, so like technically, I can't, I can't stress this. Technically, enough. you could fool your mind into thinking <laughs> something else, but like you are wrong, and I, I think that's important. There's this weird thing that Americans do where they, even if there's not another side, they still want somebody to play devil's advocate. Yep. They want somebody to be like, "Well, here's a thought experiment." <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> and it's like. Why do you need that? Yeah, we don't you need the thought don't experiment. You fucking need it. The thought experiment is just having to think about it. <laughs> and sit with it and yeah. the realities of it. It's it true. sucks. No End in Sight picks up 2006-2007 after Iraq had descended into another round of absolute chaos. Yes, yeah, so some of the worst times there. In 2006 and 2007, Iraq had 15 to 20 reported bombings per day. Yeah. By this point, 3 million Iraqis had fled, and there were an estimated like 600,000 deaths. Yeah. All of the death estimates for these wars are not 100% accurate. They can never really they be fully accurate. They will never accurate, be accurate. Yeah. But just think about that as an estimate. Yeah. All right? we, we say that 1 million number, but there's it's got to be so much more. Yeah. And when we think about those, like, oh, fled. Well, fleeing is a, nut, is a death in and of itself. To That's be a so refugee true. is... Yeah devastating yeah and who knows what kind of violence they met in the places where they ended up of i mean course. i know here they met a lot of violence certainly so. certainly because you got the shit bombed out of you and got 
forced out of your home by this awful imperial power, mm-hmm. and then you go to a place and they're like, fuck you, <laughs> you piece, <laughs> of <laughs> piece of shit. Yeah, it's fucked up. It's really wild. So let's start at sort of the beginning here. A lot of the reason for America's invasion of Iraq happened because of this Iraqi exile named Ahmed Chalabi. If you don't know who Ahmed Chalabi was, he was like a a wealthy Iraqi who left during Saddam's regime, and he was very anti-Saddam. And so he did a very good job of convincing Donald Rumsfeld and the Bush administration that the invasion of Iraq would be quick and that the turnover to an exile-run democratic government would be like easy and it would gain control quickly. All the Iraqis would be like, yes, we're in. <laughs> and Ahmed Chalabi, his whole plan was, and then I'll just be president. Right. That was his like yep. idea. Yep. Wild. <laughs> and Donald Rumsfeld was like, good. And they listened. Yep, they listened. Honestly, I don't think it's wild that he had that idea. <laughs> yeah. It's wild that they listened. Yeah, and they were like, yeah, that guy, right, man. We don't fucking know you, but yeah, sure. All right. So here's the thing. With no end in sight, we follow the story from Chalabi to invasion. Throughout, we are talking to specialists who were never consulted. And they say, we would have told them immediately that's not going to (laughs) work. This is a bad idea. Specialists with all of the Iraqi demographic and political knowledge provided evidence of how Iraq would not be an easy fix, and the administration completely ignored this entire thing. Within the first month of the fall of Baghdad in April 2003, that's how quickly it fell, I mean, March to April, so they were right about one thing, they could destroy a country really quickly. Yep. The problem was that there's, they had no plan to rebuild it at all. Like, Nothing. There was no martial law instituted, which all these specialists agreed, like you needed a period of martial law to establish something resembling the order that existed before Mm -hmm. so that then you could build this coalition government. They didn't do that. The U.S. military was told to kind of sit back. As a result, looting broke out everywhere. The organization that the Americans brought in to govern, which was called ORHA, which... um, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the <laughs> Orha. You don't remember the app? You I don't, don't know what the acronym says? I, I have it somewhere else. Orha. Yeah. Orha, you know. <laughs> they only had 60 days to plan for how to govern the entire country of Iraq. A massive, diverse it's, country. When you think about it, that's insane because they had been talking about it for a whole year at that point. Yeah, and you know what they were talking they about? They were like, 60, oh, oh, the bombs. Like, <laughs> that's it. That's it. Yeah. So they had this ministry, and that was the only site in Iraq that received military protection. This was the ministry where uh, the the U.S. people were stationed. It had, you know, all this military protection. The entire city of Baghdad and the rest of the country descended into complete chaos. The National Museum, the library, the archives were destroyed— you talk to these Iraqi historians who are just observing the destruction of their entire history and they're yeah. crying because they say our entire history of a nation, a thousands year old people yeah. was destroyed overnight. The doc is interspersing clips of Iraqis upset about the lack of support and security from the U.S. And then you have videos of Rumsfeld kind of, of goofing course. with the press. Yeah, of course. They're like, hey, what's going on with uh, the fact that all these People are being killed, and he's like, hey, meh, like, meh. like he just hits them yeah. with goofs, and everyone kind of laughs. That was the mm. attitude we had. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, the press was like. <laughs> this goes back yeah. to what we were talking about in regards to Fahrenheit 9/11. Yeah. The press was just like chill about this. They were chill about it for for a, for years. They yeah. were chill about this. The Bush administration was absolutely unprepared for how to stabilize Iraq after invasion. They show this guy, Colonel Shinseki, who stood before Congress to inform them that a force of several hundred thousand would be necessary for both invasion and establishing of the government. And then Rumsfeld was like, fuck off, dude. The invading force that they sent in was 160,000 troops, which was enough to topple a regime, enough to destroy a country mm -hmm. and defeat a military, not enough to establish order. <laughs> so I'm not, this, this documentary doesn't, as much examine the unethical thing of yeah. just the invasion, because I think that's understood yeah. that going yeah. in, it's the fact that they didn't plan for what happens after. Yeah. They're like, we can go in and kill those motherfuckers. I mean, which I guess is part of what, that's, part of what makes it so unethical yes. in the first place. Yes. So. Because so, yeah. when you think about the war in Iraq, you can't think of it as a battlefield sort it's of not, war. Yeah. It's not. The, the fighting was quick because you have the U.S. military. It's Going to destroy shit, that's yeah. what it's good at. It was not at all a force that was for stabilizing. It's no. a force to destabilize. Yeah, that's was, what it's always been I mean, good that at. Was, it was supposed, that was the whole plan in the first place, was to make it descend into chaos so they could reap all the financial benefits you know, yes, which, that they possibly yeah, could. A few companies certainly did. Oh, <laughs> yeah, they did. So in Orha, this organization that was in charge of restoring order and... Uh, some sort of government to Iraq finally arrived in the city months later after the fall of Baghdad. Most of the city was destroyed from looting and, of course, the invasion and the bombings and whatever. Mm -hmm. The people who were supposed to govern had no ability to govern. There was no way to restore order because there was no plan to restore order. Right. The plan was war. It was not, what do you do with all of this afterwards? Before the war, the Iraqi morgue received one murder case per month. After invasion, that number jumped to 25 per day. Wow. And by Iraq, I mean Baghdad specifically. Yeah. So one murder a month to 25 per day. In one city. Yes, in one city. Mm -hmm. They had, for the first time ever, widespread reported rapes and kidnappings of Iraqi girls. Of course. This is not something that happened before. As we've said before, hey, this is not a pro saying podcast, okay? <laughs> We're not saying, hey, that guy was good. The problem is, what happens when you go in and things get worse? Yeah. Like, what are you supposed what to say about this guy yeah. who is bad? Yeah. Right? Yeah, what are you supposed to say about this guy who is bad where there's only one murder a month under his watch? Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's bad, and yet, but, you know. And yet, there was 25 a day <laughs> yes. when we went there. And those are only the people that were brought to the morgue. How many more were yeah, just Yeah, how many like, more were just dying? Yeah, true. In... In a story that is as old as time, and you've mentioned this with why the Italian mafia sprung up, mm -hmm. because people needed protection because there was no sort of centralized governmental protection, people turned to sectarian militias in their neighborhoods that were there to restore order and said, hey, we can bring order to this place, yes, through violence, but hey, that's order. The film and several of the people that it talks to use the term security vacuum quite a bit here because... Yeah. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. There's no security to speak of, so you turn to these sectarian militias who have beliefs that we would consider to be very fucked up, yeah. but they're giving you an alternative. Yeah, an alternative to chaos. Yes. Yeah, which in a war zone, you're going to take. Yeah, I'll take that. And 
I don't blame people for doing that. Yeah. No, not at all. You can't. You cannot. This guy, Paul Bremer, was brought into Iraq and made to lead the reconstruction effort. This loser had no clue what he was doing. He was just a guy like many ambassadors and people put in charge. It was like, hey, I know this guy. Let's throw the guy in there. Yeah. Didn't know anything about Iraq or the Middle East. Had never served in the military. He Bush was a guy. A lot. Yeah, George he did Bush that a lot. lot. It's like, hey, there's Remember a guy. Remember Brownie? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, there's a fucking guy. So Bremer decides to halt the creation of the provisional Iraqi government, which is a huge problem. He does this thing called debathification, mm. which is the destruction mm -hmm. of the Ba'ath Party. Saddam Hussein was a member of the Ba'ath Party, and part of Bremer's plan was you got to get rid of all the former Saddam people. And then, of course, probably the number one big problem, he disbanded the Iraqi military. Yeah. Coalition government. Yeah, coalition government, In folks. big fucking air quotes. Yeah. So let me talk about why Bremer's choices were so monumentally bad. Obviously, halting the creation of a provisional Iraqi government, that takes power out of the hands of Iraqis, which, remember the whole thing about bringing democracy right. to Iraq? Well, that means letting Iraqis do democracy. Decide what they want to do. That wasn't allowed, okay? <laughs> None of that. Debothification, which doesn't sound like such a big deal, was actually a huge problem because most people were affiliated with the Ba'ath Party. Right. Saddam Hussein was a tyrant. You had to kind of be a member of his political party. And so most people's jobs were tied to their association with the Ba'ath Party. When you did that and you got rid of it, you elimin eliminated most jobs <laughs> in the Iraqi government. So all of these people that had jobs no longer had jobs. Overnight, you're talking Huge about cluster yeah, like the middle class of Iraq just gutted upper middle class and middle class. Thousands of people lost their jobs. The function of government is destroyed, and then this final one, disbanding the Iraqi military, is chaos because a huge portion of the population lost their livelihoods overnight. And many of these people had access to weapons, knew where all of the Iraqi um, weapon cash caches were mm -hmm. and they went and just got those <laughs> and joined the, the insurgencies yeah. and the sectarian militias yeah. everyone who knew anything about iraq told these guys this was a bad idea they were and all like yet. they were like this is not smart it almost seems like this was on purpose <laughs> it really does <laughs> it really does and of course after you disband the iraqi military you do this debothification the insurgency begins Almost immediately afterwards. And then you can fight them for fucking ever. Yes, and then and that's... spend a lot of money and also make a lot of money. Yes, you start the forever war there. These guys raided the munitions depots and armed themselves because what the hell else are they supposed to do? Right. The guys who made this decision, I should say, had never been to Iraq, never served in the U.S. <laughs> military, and had no clue, and they had never consulted anyone about, mm -hmm. you know, why to do the thing that you're doing that has a big impact. None of the idiots who were responsible for these big things wanted to be interviewed for this documentary. Of course. Reasonably. Yeah. However, the senior advisor to the Coalition Provisional Authority, a guy named Walter Slocum, chose to be interviewed. Wow. And he just gets eviscerated the entire time. Yeah. I don't know what this idiot... He must not have had anything to do. Because he just gets skewered. Or maybe he felt like a tinge of... Guilt? I don't want to say yeah, that. Maybe, maybe. Maybe. Because there's a guy in, in the documentary that I'm watching with my kids called We Are Many, mm -hmm. who was in the CIA at the time. And he, you could tell he felt like a lot of guilt. And yeah. that's why he's allowing himself to like be on camera, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess I can sort of say, all right, Walter Slocum, like, you took a bullet. None of these <laughs> other guys took a bullet. Because 
every question that he has asked, he's like, well, I don't know. I can't. Wow. <laughs> wow. He, Walter Slocum. So he had like no information also. He, he pretty much never went to Iraq. And he is the senior advisor to the Coalition Provisional Authority. Jeez. So since the Coalition Provisional Authority had nobody intelligent or prepared to work in <laughs> Iraq, yep. literal fresh college grads with no experience were put in mm -hmm. charge of major projects because they knew like somebody. Like Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah, yes. And these are people with even less experience than her <laughs> because there's this wild story of a college girl showing up and to the, the base where you know things are safe and they say, oh, what... What are you doing here? Like an intern? And she's like, I'm in charge of infrastructure. Oh, my God. Like she was in charge of all Iraqi oh infrastructure. God. The CPA does this thing where they build a major compound in the middle of Baghdad. They call that the green zone. It right. is a walled city in the middle of Baghdad, which is this poignant symbol of occupation. The rest of Baghdad is happening around them. The green zone is the only place that has intense uh, military security mm -hmm has all of these people living relatively peaceful lives in a walled city with chaos all around them. Pretty obvious yeah. metaphor. Totally. <laughs> <It's> totally. <crazy. laughs> American Could it be more on the nose, yeah, it's America? A little, we're, not, we're not subtle people, okay? <laughs> American contractors are given much of the work to rebuild Iraq. Interesting. Mm. And they didn't do a very good job, if you can believe it. <laughs> Their work truly sucked. They mm -hmm. had options to use Iraqi contractors who would have loved to have the work and the say in what their city turned into <laughs> and the money, which is very important. These American contractors were corrupt and you don't they say. had no knowledge of how to no do way. anything in this place. <laughs> no way. Yeah, water and electricity were really hard to come by for most Iraqis. This was a story that I remember hearing a lot of in 2005, yeah. 2006. Another thing where you hear it and then you see Rumsfeld talking about it and he's like, yeah, listen, you know, sometimes, bleh, but like people are exaggerating. And it's like, no, if you didn't have water or electricity, <laughs> you would want it We should too. have cut them off. Yeah, we should have cut off Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah, we should have. <laughs> we should have. During the chaos post-invasion, much of the U.S. military was not used as security for Iraqi people whose homes and lives they just destroyed, yep. they were used as a terrorist organization to raid homes, detain most Iraqi men of military age, and ultimately destroy families by removing their breadwinners, because this is Iraqi homes where your man mm -hmm. in the, of the house is your breadwinner, and they just throw them in prisons, specifically prisons like Abu Ghraib, right. which we know was big on torture. Yep. So great job so far. In my opinion, they were all big on torture. Yes. I can't imagine that there was one where that was not happening. Yes. Abu Ghraib, the pictures just came out. Yeah, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, they were all big on torture. Yeah. That was happening everywhere. It's like, oh man, you're going to Abu Ghraib, that's too bad. My horrible prison where I'm detained <laughs> is really nice, actually. They're really good guys. <laughs> so sorry to hear that. Yeah. It, just the story of private military contractors coming to Iraq and destroying it. One of the most disgusting parts of this Ugh. because it's just so transparently about gutting a country, extracting profit. Yep. But leaving it no better. No. And part of the Bush well, administration's thing was like, we're going to go in there. We're bringing education, freedom, <laughs> clean water, freedom. all these things. And it's like, no, you're not. Yeah. Freedom. Yeah. We're bringing freedom there. By because we're the experts. Yes. The freedom of death. 
freedom of dying. <laughs> in 2004, the city of Fallujah was taken over by Shia militia and the city was sieged by U.S. military. This was a big story at the yeah. time. The documentary covers it. It renders the city, this ancient, beautiful city, rubble. Destroys yeah. the whole place to kick out the Shia militia who had restored order. I'm not saying that they were like good guys, but you know, there was order in this city yeah. and it was destroyed and it displaced 100,000 people, this military siege by the U.S. military of, of the city of Fallujah. By 2006, Baghdad was in enemy. It was divided into sections controlled by militias, warlords, and of course, the U.S. green zone <laughs> in the middle of the city. Kidnappings and killings reached hundreds daily. This was a constant war zone. This is three years after the defeat of Saddam Hussein. Yeah. Three years later, things have only gotten worse. Yeah. So freedom, right? Freedom. By the end of the film, they discuss the consequences. And they have, obviously, several parts of this. The human consequence is one that is like hard to quantify. We can say the numbers of people that Yeah, but were it doesn't killed. tell the story. And this is, by the way, this documentary was 2007. Yeah, it doesn't even include the next 13 years. Yes, so that 600,000 number, 2007, much higher than that. I was just thinking, I think people really thought in 2007 that it was going to end soon. Mm-hmm. No. And it just went on for another 13 years. No, my friend that fought several tours in Iraq. He graduated in 2005, and he was still in Iraq in 2007, 2008. Yeah. Like, this didn't stop, and the fighting that he saw was horrible. Yeah. It happened constantly. Yeah. So this place where freedom was brought <laughs> was decimated. When yeah. you think about the length of a war, like, one year sounds like a lot. Yeah, the, the war in absolutely. Ukraine has been going on for over a year, and it has been like... We're not even a part of it, but yeah. it feels exhausting. No, yeah. It's awful. Three years in Iraq by the time this documentary is made. Four years by the time this documentary is released, essentially. Yeah. And it did not stop. Yeah. World War One was what? Three years? Uh, four years. Yeah. You think like, well, yeah, about four years. Yeah. And World War Two was seven? Yeah. But like all yeah. in, you're talking about like four years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. With, I'm, I'm not talking. Yeah. I'm just talking about the general length, yeah, not yeah. just the American involvement. Yeah. Vietnam was eight? It was, yeah, depending on what time. But yeah, the yeah. like heavy fighting, you're okay. looking at like five, eight okay, years. Okay, but yeah. yeah, but it was yeah. altogether eight. Yes, it was not so as long as this. So we've just been escalating, <laughs> Yeah. essentially. we got to do a longer war. We have to keep doing longer wars. Well, yeah. they found out that wars are very profitable, so. They, they are to some, right? Mm -hmm. The financial costs, which it seems callous, but that is the language that we speak. And it's also not callous when you consider what is taken away mm -hmm. by those financial resources being diverted to something that is fucking senseless, mm -hmm. needless and senseless. So this is 2007 estimates. They said that the war in Iraq, not the war on terror, not Afghanistan, just the war in Iraq by 2007 cost about 1.86 trillion dollars trillion can't even i don't even know what that number is in my brain it means nothing yeah. because they didn't like calculate it no this was calculated by independent researchers the u.s military is and the government are not going to give you numbers yeah because they don't fucking know because the only time that things are expensive is when you want health care <laughs> or so you true. want free college <laughs> it's so true or you want to like loan yeah, student loan cancellation. If you want to, 
green the economy, make things better and safer and nicer for us, then you have yeah. a problem. Or then a trillion is a yeah. lot. Or provide like mental health services for people so that we don't have to depend on other types of mm -hmm. punishment and incarceration. Sure. Yeah, wouldn't yeah. that be something? Wouldn't that be nice? But no. But no. <laughs> Two trillion dollars in one war zone three and a half to four years later. Yeah, so just multiply that. Yep. By the rest of the years. The rest of the years, plus Afghanistan, yep. plus all of the covert shit that was happening with the CIA yep. that we saw in Zero Dark Thirty. Yep. How much? How many billions did that cost? So many. Like, this is the thing it's that disgusting it, it frustrates me so much because the human toll is something that is incalculable, but yeah. we also have the calculable. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And for all it's these true. war hawks, this hurts. <laughs> so, like, this fucking hurts <laughs> yeah. us. Yeah. They also go on to discuss um, veterans' issues like PTSD, PTSD, debilitating combat injuries, the inability of many vets to adjust to life in the U.S. after combat tours, Which, stuff like that. Yeah. All of these things are, of course, very important. This movie really got me. Yeah. It's a hundred, not a hundred, it's an hour, 40 minutes, which is like a reasonable length for a film. Yeah. It's not too long, and yet the amount that you receive is overwhelming, yeah. which this should be overwhelming. It should be. Highly recommend this film for anyone. It is not a historical document as much as it is something that you should be mad about fucking right now. <laughs> <laughs> None of this is really a historical document. We're talking about the 20, 20th anniversary of the start. Yeah, of the start. And this is 2007. Hey, I was in college in 2007. Yeah, same. Doesn't seem that long ago. It's, it wasn't. Yeah. None of this was that long ago. Yeah. I mean, it didn't, it just ended, yep. quote unquote. Yes. I'm not saying that it really yeah. ended, folks, but, but you, know. <laughs> you know, we said it did. Yeah. We left, I guess. <laughs> so that's, that's uh, no end in sight. Okay. And guess what? There's no end in sight. There's no end in sight. I just wanted to say one thing that hit me today, that uh, something you were talking about reminded me of it. I, I said, I mentioned before, I was, I'm watching this documentary called We Are Many, which is about anti-war activism during the early year, the, during the early invasion of Iraq. And they're interviewing a, a person who was, in, a man who was in the U.S. Armed Forces at the time. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, I've said it, I said it on the, on the Michael Moore episode that I know that not every person who gets into the military is getting into it for like noble reasons or anything like that. And I don't, I am not a supporter of <laughs> the U.S. military or sure. the military industrial complex. However, something that he said did strike me. He said, when you sign your life on the line for your country and swear to defend it, the only thing you ask for in return is a good reason. Yeah. And then he obviously went on to explain how this was not... No, a good reason. Like, no. This was like a this is like a piece of shit. That's so true. <laughs> lie that they told them, and convinced them to be part of this thing that they didn't want. He was already he was already on contract. You know. Yeah. He didn't want to be part of this. This was not mm -hmm. his plan. He didn't sign up when George Bush made that decision. Yeah. He was already part of the armed forces, and he got dragged into it simply because that was his quote unquote job. Yeah, it's your job, and your job fucking sucks. Yeah. And there's so many of these larger, lofty ideals attached to your job, but ultimately, it's your job. It's just your job. Yeah, it's just your job. And and then you get fucking fucked over. Yeah, they you just got rid of the lofty a... ideals in this one. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's like, nah, I don't. It's, you're gonna make a, a couple guys rich. Yeah, like that's, that's your it. job. Literally, you're that's essentially it. just. 
And they also talk about in this, of course, the private security forces. All of these Which, disgusting yes. elements yeah. of the invasion of Iraq and things that are going to continue to get bigger as billionaires get more billionaire mm-hmm. is this kind of shit. Yeah. God, just don't forget that a couple numbskulls <laughs> made this decision. I guess they're not so numb. Well, a couple of them were. They're just right? like evil assholes. They're they're evil assholes. Yeah, they they executed I guess a part of their plan and maybe you could say it was built in that this plan, you know, was meant to cause just absolute chaos. I think it was. Um, it seems like it from especially yes. revisiting like I, I you know, I've always had that feeling, but especially like revisiting stuff. It definitely the whole thing was supposed to fall apart. Yeah. Because then you were able then they were able to put like more people so they can make more money. Yep. And something that anyone can sort of look at, if you want to look at it this from like a racist lens or whatever, people will say, well, most of the killing was done Iraqi on Iraqi, right? Like, because you have these sectarian militias right. that are fighting, completely eliminating the idea that a huge yeah. invading army destabilized the entire region. What do you... Uh, I just need everybody to just like... <laughs> Learn some fucking shit about colonialism, okay? What do you think happens when you bring, when you wrought all this violence in a place? Yeah. You think people are just going to be fucking chill with each other? That's not how it goes. We're human beings. Yeah, and you cut off access to all food, water, electricity. Don't you think these people are going to want to do what they can to, like, survive? To live? It's every man for himself at that point. Yeah, dude. This. And don't, don't get me wrong. I know that there are people over there taking care of each other. Because of there course. were yeah. a lot of people over there taking care of each other without violence. Of course. For sure. And fighting for each other, right? But, yeah, ultimately the majority probably not going to do that. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it is. Yeah, you got to fight fight for yourself. I mean, I know a lot of lunatic Americans are, like, praying for the day when things are destabilized. Literally. And they can just... We talked about that on yeah. the survivalism yeah, on the episode. Survival, <laughs> I just totally thought of that. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's talk about Restrepo because I think... Of course, it's a great segue. We're talking about soldiers. We're talking about the military. Restrepo is a military documentary. So where No End in Sight is taking this really big macro examination of a huge geopolitical event, Restrepo follows one platoon in Afghanistan. Here's your IMDb one-sentence synopsis. (laughs) A year with one platoon in the deadliest valley in Afghanistan. All right. I guess. On point. Sure. Yeah. On point. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. Go ahead, IMDb. Give us nothing. <laughs> Here's your uh, little bit longer Wikipedia thing. Restrepo is a 2010 American documentary film about the war in Afghanistan, directed by British photojournalist Tim Hetherington and American <laughs> journalist Sebastian Younger. It explores the year that Younger and Hetherington spent on assignment for Vanity Fair in Afghanistan's Korangal Valley, embedded with the 2nd Platoon, B Company, 2nd Battalion, 503rd Infantry Regiment, 173rd Airborne Brigade, (laughs) Combat Team of the U.S. Army. The 2nd Platoon is depicted defending the outpost OP, named after a platoon medic who was killed earlier in the campaign, Private First Class Juan Sebastian Restrepo, who was a Colombian-born naturalized U.S. citizen. The directors stated that the film is not a war advocacy documentary. They simply, quote, wanted to capture the reality of the soldiers. Which they do. Yeah. Which they do. I guess, depending on which lens you're viewing this from, you might It's one of those, yes. It's one of those. However, coming from where I am coming from, there are moments in this film where you cannot help but think, 
wow, this is an awful colonizing force. <laughs> Regardless of how human they are, they're very human. This is an awful colonizing force in a place that is not their own, killing people. Yep. Which is their job. Yep. We've said it before, but, but their job sucks. Their job sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and they should have never signed up for it. Yep. So to give you guys a little bit of a backdrop here, Korangal or the Korangal Valley is at the time of this documentary and was for many years the most dangerous place mm-hmm. for you to be an American soldier in Afghanistan. This was an outpost for Taliban fighters. The platoon is at the top of a hill in the Korangal Valley and several members of the platoon describe themselves as sitting ducks for the Taliban. They're pretty much up there getting shot at constantly. Mm-hmm. The powerful thing about Restrepo is that it's essentially narrated by the soldiers who experienced it. There is no omnipotent narrator. <laughs> it's just a series of clips of their time there and then talking head footage of the soldiers after they've returned home. And you can see how intense this place was just by the way that they talk about it. Yeah. You don't even need to see the footage, but the footage is rough. The big yeah. question that a lot of them have at the beginning of the documentary, I think they I don't think they actually try to answer it even is what are we doing here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they say that a lot. <laughs> like there's a there's one guy who is sort of in charge and he's like what are we doing here? And then he tries to answer it. But it's like, no, the question is good is what are we doing here? Within 13 minutes, we learn about Doc Restrepo's death. He was a medic who was shot in the neck and he died on the helicopter ride out. He was beloved by the members of the platoon. He was a really funny guy, gregarious, whatever. And he, and he, got, he got fucking killed. So the question, what are we doing in Korangal? The specialist tries to answer it with this. They're there to secure a road that ran through the valley that could connect the people in the valley to more resources, and they argue with those resources they could build wealth. Hmm. So Korangal is essentially a strategic location that will bring wealth to the people <laughs> of the Korangal Valley. Huh. Not sure how that is going to work. You guys, that doesn't sound true. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think someone told this guy that. So this guy, he's one of our main characters. I don't want to call him a character. He's a real dude. Captain Carney. He's the guy in charge. And we see him meeting with local leaders to try and find some agreement so that they can help with security in the region. That's what they say. Hey, we're there to keep you guys safe Mm -hmm. from the Taliban so that we can eventually get this road to bring you uh, more uh, wealth, I guess. (laughs) Carney then explains that the Korangal Valley was described as the deadliest place on earth for American soldiers. We then meet Kimball. He's a kid who grew up with a nice hippie mom, and he kind of joined the army as an act of rebellion. Wow. There's a lot of kids in this movie. Worst mistake you made. Yeah, they are children. Why did you do that? Just, I've, I'm sh- I don't know. Should have listened sure to your mom, it. Kimball. I don't know. It sucks, man. The platoon pushes further into the valley and digs out an outpost that they call Outpost Restrepo or OP Restrepo, which they name, of course, after their dead friend. They do this by digging out the outpost and putting up sandbags, building these little wooden structures. And this is supposed to, I guess, send a message and also create like a more strategic location for them to observe the valley and fight. While they're building the outpost, it's just them and some sandbags 
in the middle of the night. They get into five to seven firefights yeah. with the Taliban. It's literally nonstop fighting. I'm not saying that, like, it's obviously it's bad that everyone's getting shot at, but the whole time I'm watching this, I'm thinking about these photojournalists who are just in the middle they're of firefights. Right yeah, they're just hanging out, yeah. Like, every so often, you just hear guns go off, and then the camera kind of, like, tries to find a place <laughs> to hide, and then it's just firefights. Just yeah. nonstop fighting. Yeah, I, I talk a lot of shit about the press, but the people who go into these war zones, Dude. It's like, that's very courageous. It's, I can't. Fucked up. Say anything other than They're that. They're amazing. Like, like that, you know, that is scary, and I can't imagine making that decision, especially if I have a family. Mm-hmm. And I they will, do it. I will never doubt the courage of the people who are doing the fighting or yeah. the people who are recording yeah. it. Sure. However, they shouldn't be there. Why are right. we here? Yeah, why are we here? <laughs> exactly. We then see, of course, another intense firefight after they show the building of OP Restrepo and it's established, and they're like really proud of it. But this fight is barbaric. You just have machine gun fire. Mm-hmm. You have the guys screaming. They're freaking out because, of course, you're freaking out. You're getting fucking yeah. shot. It's scary. And it's the middle of the fucking night. Yes. So as it descends into day, Kimball explains that they get into four to five firefights per day and that OP Restrepo is a shitty place that shouldn't be named after Restrepo because it doesn't yeah. represent the type of person I remember that. he was. After that, we get a little slice of life stuff between the soldiers. <laughs> This gives us the idea that you have moments of, uh, you know, chaos, but then you have moments of niceness. And, and you know, they're just, yeah, yeah, they're just guys that are trying to make sense of the situation that they're in and, and how it sucks. They're young guys. They're young. They're like 18 mm-hmm. to early 20s. I guess Carney is probably a little bit older because he's the captain. He's the guy in charge. But there's mostly a lot of waiting around for something really bad to happen. We follow the platoon on a mission into a village. They're trying to win hearts and minds, which they say almost like as a joke because mm-hmm. they know that that's rhetoric. Not work. Remember yeah. that rhetoric? Yeah, that's what they said. Yeah. Oh, hearts and minds. So like they yeah. shoot a machine gun and then they're like hearts and minds. That, was that a Bushism? Yeah, it must have been. Yeah, it had right? to be right. In their in their joking about it, one of them says. Yeah, let's take their hearts and then their minds. So the idea is yeah. that no, we're gonna fucking kill them. Right. The assumption here is that violence is the only way to get anything accomplished in the Korangal Valley. These guys go in, they interview this young Afghani shepherd who says that they cannot tell anything about the soldiers of the Taliban because then they'll be killed by the Taliban. So they're in this situation where you have the Very US military. Very reasonable yeah. response. And they're like, hey, tell us where the fuck the Taliban is. And they're like, I can't tell you. So all these Afghani I'm people bad. that are in the way yeah. are just like, they're fucked. Either yeah. way, you have the U.S. government or you have the Taliban. It's not great. We realize that the lack of communication and understanding between the platoon and the locals is pretty much the biggest impediment to accomplishing anything. Mm-hmm. Nobody understands each other here. Yeah. They're talking through a translator, and even when they're talking, you get the idea that these American soldiers do not fucking understand what it is like yeah. because they don't. As I said before, this scene was really the scene that made me think, wow, I want to sympathize and empathize with these soldiers and i do as humans but i cannot ever yeah no you can't this mission (laughs) is awful (laughs) and that's okay brother i just want to say yes that's okay yes it makes me it makes me sad you do not have to sympathize with that yeah this this interview with this guy named uh, steiner he was a young guy he was uh he, he loved fighting he loved killing and they say uh 
Yeah. They say like, hey, you know, what, what, what's up? How do you feel about this? He says, once you get shot at, you can't come down. It's like the biggest yep. high. And then the filmmaker asks, how are you going to go back to civilian life? And he says, I have no idea. This reminded me of the Hurt, Hurt Locker, Locker. Big yeah. time. Totally. We meet the cook you just, of... You uh, turn people into killers and they want to stay killers forever. Yeah. Yeah, it sucks. It's, it's not great. That guy kind of had a moment after one of his friends gets killed. I'll get to that in a second because you see that. We meet the cook who's uh, of the Korangal outpost and he's uh, bullied and it's sort of endearing. This is like another goof thing. <laughs> then you have Captain Carney. He meets with a group of elders. This is a huge group of elders. And they're like, hey, what happened to our friend that got detained and released? And he's like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. He gets really pissed off. He is saying fuck to the, obviously they can't understand, yeah. but like he's just being an asshole to all these old guys sitting around because he feels like they know something that he doesn't know and he just wants to get it out of them. This goes nowhere. They discuss a cow that the soldiers killed and the elders want restitution for a cow. Yeah. This is a really big deal for them. A cow is worth a lot of money and a lot of livelihood for yeah. like these rural people that live in the mountains. They try to arrange a payout. They can't arrange a payout. So they bargain with the weight of the cow in rice, beans, and sugar. This seems like a huge oh, failure of diplomacy here. <laughs> yeah. It's not the same thing as a cow. Yeah. Give them yeah. sugar. Yeah, they're just like, Wait, here's a what? thousand pounds of rice, beans, and sugar. Like, what? fuck off, man. So then we go into the real crescendo of the film, which is this thing called Operation Rock Avalanche. It's described by many soldiers as the low point and the most terrifying experience of their time in Korangal. So the mission required the platoon to enter this hostile territory with a bunch of sol um, where a bunch of soldiers had been killed in previous engagements. The lead up to the mission is really tense. They know that they're about to go into this yeah. awful environment. They're listening to like hard rock music, trying to get pumped up. But at the same time, they're terrified because they know that they or their really good friends, their brothers are going to get killed or hurt really badly. This is an awful gripping scene. I don't want to, it's hard, hard to call it a scene. It's real. So American attack helicopters bombard some areas along the mountains and then the platoons enter the homes where civilians have just been hurt and killed. Five locals specifically were killed. You see a crying baby. You see all of these kids covered in mud and debris. And then Carney is like, hey, you know, I feel pretty bad that these locals got killed, but we know that they were connected to them in some way. Because they find like a they find like a stash of guns somewhere in the village. And it's like, bro, you killed five people, yeah. man. I don't know what you want. Also, those guns could have not been related yes. to the Taliban in any way. It's very likely that you would just have like, like some guns. What are guns. you talking about? I don't know. Then this colonel comes in and he's like, hey, man, I'm sorry that we killed some people in your village, but... Um, you know how bad the jihadists are. These foreigners are coming into your country and trying to like change your way of life. Mm. And it's like, you don't understand? Mm. <laughs> you don't see how crazy that is what you just said? So this foreigner who just orders this attack helicopter to bomb your village is like, God, these other foreigners these are other bad foreigners news, are bad. man. We're the good ones. Yeah, we're like the white guys. They're the bad ones. These, these Islamic dudes are bad. Oh my fucking God. Then we have the big firefight. The platoon gets ambushed. They're hit with RPGs and machine gun fire. You see some of this. A lot more of this is just described by the guys. Then you have the death of their friend, Sergeant Rugel, which is, which is really awful. Another guy, Sergeant Rice, who survived, was hit by bullets and somehow an RPG and survived. He lost his Jeez. arm, I think. It's chaos. The filmmakers are somehow just around as all the shit is going on. They're shooting. Then 
this one guy learns about the death of Sergeant Rugal and he breaks down. It's the most human moment of the yeah. film. He's crying. This one guy tries to tell him, like, it was quick. And also, we don't really have time to deal with it because we're getting shot at right now. But this guy is, like, losing it because his friend just got killed. Then we kind of have the aftermath. One soldier, this younger Latino guy, says he's on four different sleep meds and he still can't sleep because the nightmares are so bad. He'd rather not sleep than have to dream about, you know, this mission. Wow. And, and this time there. That's who we want. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's... We want people who have been completely deprived of rest Yes. to be doing this type it's, of stuff. It's awful. And just like, what do you do after that? You're a young kid, and then it's like, hey, here's life. I'm not saying you can't recover, but it clearly it's these guys... It's very hard. Yes, it's, it's very obviously hard. very hard. You, you know, I don't think we have to like sure. It's obviously very hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. As, been exemplified, as has been <laughs> exemplified by the last 10 years, mm -hmm. it's obviously very hard. So this mission... You know, Rugal is dead and this other guy is wounded, but ultimately most of the platoon survives. They kill a lot of people along the way. Mm -hmm. Then they get news of this thing called the Battle of Wanat, which was another event that happened in Korangal. Nine American soldiers were killed along with 21 to 65 Taliban fighters. Captain Carney breaks the news to the platoon that he's like, hey, a bunch of people just got killed. And then he uses it as like a pep talk opportunity. Oh, God. And he's like... Hey, did you did you sign up for this? And everyone's like, yeah. And he like asks a bunch of guys, and he's like, hey, why are you here? And then the guy's like, freedom or something like you know some <laughs> shit like that. And then he says, after Restrepo died, we went out and continued to fight. And the only thing we can do is go out there and make these motherfuckers pay. It's pretty much what he says. So his pep talk is like the whole attitude for this entire yeah, thing. <laughs> the whole war. These is are that. not your fucking. <laughs> This is a made-up enemy. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Obviously, of course, this is a response that they would have, but they're not being asked to consider why they're here because mm -hmm. they can't be asked to consider yeah. that because you lose your mind. Yeah. Your brain would just break on camera. Like, your job sucks, and I really hate that your job sucks, and it, I hate that it is useless, and I hate that it accomplishes nothing. Yeah. I, that's all I can say is I hate that for you. Like, yeah. I don't know what else to say. There's nothing else to say. So we have a little scene where the men are informed that they're about to go home in two months. There's another firefight that ends in an Afghan death, and this has some of the most like awful shit ever. They kill the guy, and then they're all celebrating because clearly they're feeling like wound up about the Battle of Wanat and all these guys that got killed. One guy says, that mother is, motherfucker is done. Another guy says, fuck you, bitch. And then another oh guy God. says, there you go, motherfucker. And then the, the kind of ends there. It ends with Carney saying that, the building of O.P. Restrepo is the most important achievement of the platoon. He says it changed the valley and the dynamics of the region. Then we cut to title card that indicates that the U.S. withdrew from the Korangal Valley in 2010 <laughs> and 50 Americans died fighting there. And that's it. So, like... For nothing. No. As the building usual. of O.P. Restrepo <laughs> did nothing. Maybe it felt like an achievement because you were trying to, like extract meaning from this meaningless thing yeah. but it was not an actual achievement yeah it was like a thing that you did i wonder what that guy would say if he was interviewed no no he'd probably be like it was still good yeah i think yeah. that he would have to like find a way which is deeply disturbing yeah and like it sucks that he had to do that like i'm not happy that he had to like go to war but um i'm not happy that anyone had to go to war yeah. it's bad yeah. <laughs> it's not good i don't know if you know but war is bad yeah so these two documentaries, 
both I would recommend watching to everybody. I would say it's kind of a reversal from our last two films that we watched, mm-hmm. Zero Dark Thirty and uh, The Hurt Locker, because these movies are essentially the real versions of those Both two things, films. Yeah. And they are, they're rough, but you will walk away knowing a lot more about like our very recent history. Yeah. And the history of like people that you're like walking around with, people that you probably went to high school with that fought there. Like, yeah. You'll know some shit after you watch these films. Yeah. I think it's really important to engage with this history, quote unquote. Yes. Yeah. And we are only, we're, we're past, two days past the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And it's, it's just like, okay, so then like Biden like pulled people out of Afghanistan and then there was like a little bit of hoopla about that and then it was like over. Yeah. And then everybody was like, okay. Yeah. And it's like, none, no one's reckoning with this because it's too hard to reckon with. Yeah. Right? It's like way too fucking hard. <laughs> it's too yeah. hard. It sucks. To have to reckon with something that is so disastrous on a national level, like, I don't even know how we are supposed to begin. I mean, I don't know how, I don't know what I expect, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I don't either. At, I guess at the very least, I expect somebody to come out and be like, yeah, that was a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, like... That wouldn't fucking change anything. No. But at least it's, like, some rec- level of recognition. Like, we really fucked up. Yeah, we fucked up so bad that, like, what are you gonna do And, now? like, me and you and, like, our friends and every person that we know basically is just saying, yeah, we fucked up is, like, not enough. No, you know? of course it's like, not enough. <laughs> like, even to, like, satisfy that recognition space. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. that is not enough. Like, we... You have to, like, really sit with this. And we should... We should be making sure that people are, are sitting with this, actually. Yeah. Which is, I mean, why we're talking about it on the podcast right now. But, yeah, people need to fucking think about this shit. Yeah. When I think about the time period, because that's what this whole season yeah. is about, this, to me, with the the Great Recession, but that not as much as this. This uh, is the fundamental. This is the de- yeah, this is the defining thing. The defining thing of the, the, ten, the 10 years, 2003 to 2013, is the war on terror, is the... General lack of meaning. There is no extractable meaning Mm -hmm. from this. The extractable meaning is like the extractable resources that were right. Iraq was invaded for. Some people got anyway. That a couple couple dudes got. A few shareholders got. But ultimately, this was a waste of everything. And those people who were displaced, the Iraqi people, the Afghani people who were displaced, they're still fucking displaced. Yeah, like. They are still trying to make homes in places that are not their homes. Yeah. And, and that fucking sucks. In their own fucking countries yeah. and other countries. The cost of war, and I guess war is a little bit more in our, our radar right now than it has been for the past like five years because of Russia and yeah. Ukraine. The cost of war is incalculable, but don't forget that it's also calculable. Yeah, it is. <laughs> And that it is the kind of shit that could be held costs accountable, right? Lives, money, time. There's a lot of numbers. Yes. <laughs> I would like restitution as a taxpayer yeah. for the four trillion dollars that were spent in Iraq and like the two trillion in Afghanistan. Like I would like that. You know? Mm-hmm. Make that free health care. Like, these are things that are <laughs> yeah. possible. Make that free health care and better immigration policy. Yes. Honestly, spend yes. the money there. 
because I don't even know, like, what do you do? What do you do with all of this, this carnage and this damage? And I know it didn't I mean, affect we, me personally. Like, that's even the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, you can't make sense yeah. of it. It's a completely senseless act. There's no good guys or bad guys here. It's all just chaos. And no one in sight, I guess, portrays that very well. Restrepo does too, because it reminds me of many Vietnam War documentaries and stuff about the Vietnam War that I've seen where platoons would fight for hours and days to get to the top mm -hmm. of a hill. They would stick an American flag in the top of a hill and then walk down the hill, which is exactly what yeah. OP Restrepo was. Yeah. You stuck your flag in the top of a hill and then you left the hill. Nothing happened. <laughs> nothing. It's all for nothing. It's and all for the, nothing. That's the really big yeah. problem. Yeah. I guess it's a pretty solid way of uh, describing the malaise of like being an American, trying to grasp meaning yeah. out of these vague notions of freedom yeah, yeah. that like don't mean anything in yeah. reality and practice. I mean, and just it's insane for a settler colonial state to be like, we're bringing freedom. Yeah. We should, and that's also something we should sit with. Yeah. <laughs> like, like everyone should be sitting with that. Like it's insane yeah. for us, for anyone in the United States to be like, yeah, we were like fighting for freedom over there. That's, we were bringing, we were bringing them democracy, which we don't even practice yeah. democracy. <laughs> yeah, we didn't bring them democracy. So what is, we what is going on? Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know. I just think that there's, it's, it's this. I feel like when it comes to the war on terror, there's not, it's not like people forget or like they don't have a stance on it, but it does feel like that uncomfortable thing that people just like don't want to really talk about too much. Yeah. You know? I, I don't know. I don't even know how to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how to talk about it, but I can <laughs> say firmly that like yeah. that shit fucking was awful and disgusting. Yeah. And it sucks that like we're a part of it. We should probably read that article that came out trying to justify yeah we'll do that next yeah, week. yeah we will do that next week i mean there's been a few articles over the last couple of weeks that have come out basically saying that we should reconsider mm. like feeling the notion like you know these are authors are feeling the notion that people hate the <laughs> hate the war on terror yeah. now oh no and so they're responding to that so you know there it's this is there still needs to be a conversation about how bad this was because there's still so many people out there being like, it wasn't as bad as you all say. Yep. Yeah. No, it's there. We got all the it's stuff. It's fucking there. <laughs> we got all the receipts. It's well documented. <laughs> it's so well documented. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck it's we're supposed to It's incredibly well documented. It's literally documented that they lied yeah. to go to Iraq. Mm -hmm. Like that part is documented. And on top of that, None of these people have been held accountable. None of them. No. And I guess I can say more on this next week. But the idea that these people, some of these people have been given redemption arcs. Yeah. That now they're sorry and sad. <laughs> Give back your fucking money that you made, you pieces of shit. It's truly horrendous. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I don't give a shit if you're sad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sad. <laughs> oh, George W. Bush's painting pictures of dead veterans. I don't fucking care. 
He's a he's a gentle soul. I don't care. You know, he's known for his gaffes. He so needs maybe to, <laughs> like, no carceral, but he needs to be put under the fucking prison. Okay. <laughs> That's that's not a person who deserves a redemption arc. No, of all the people, like we can't. And what the Cheney family's just chilling. Like, yeah. don't even get me started. Like, this is not just the fact that that is like a thing mm-hmm. should prompt people to like speak out against it more often. And people do. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. People do. But I'm just saying, like, we need more voices to be talking about it. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah, constantly. Remind, reminding ourselves and reminding everyone else that this was a crime uh, against everybody. Absolutely. Perpetrated by a few very wealthy, very powerful white dudes. I'm, I guess a couple, couple uh, people of color. <laughs> don't forget <laughs> just, Condoleezza and Colin. Just, yeah, don't forget. <laughs> but pretty much just, uh, just a few powerful people made decisions that fucking sucked yeah, and i guess that's true of all war like if you're really thinking about of it of course that's true of all war right like we could talk about how about like world war one also being mm-hmm. like a useless terrible war that just like didn't need to happen like it's true of all war there's a couple of people making decisions that affect millions of other people it's very true but in certain cases it's like you can't even extract anything good no from it you know, you can't even, there's nothing, there's just nothing. Like, fighting against fascism, okay. I'll, yeah, <laughs> like, you gotta guess, be like, all right. I guess I'll give you that one, sure. Yeah. I don't know where, you know, I don't know how I really feel about that. But, like, I'm just saying, like, fighting against fascism, okay, I'll give you that one. But, like, this this is, yeah. you don't need to be, like, both sides in this. You could just be like, this was terrible. Yeah, it was a, and it's useless. a great tragedy. Anyway. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of laughs today. And... <laughs> 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 it's good. Good that you joined us these for four, these four episodes fest. for this month are just so funny. <laughs> the height of our comedy. This is your daily goof break. Thank anyway. you. Thank you guys for listening. Yeah. Uh, talk about this with your fucking friends. Talk about it with your friends. Talk about becoming a patron with your friends, that and then too. and then do it. And then do it. That's it. Mm-hmm.